0: I've always thought of Brad as the Peter Vogel. I'd rather be the Robert
1: Moog, actually, but that's okay.
0: (laughs) Travel back in time to the 80s, reliving the laughter. (laughs) The heroes.
2: Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters.
0: And the honesty.
1: What's up, Nog? My nipples. It's freezing out there. (laughs) Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s.
0: Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Hey, hey, welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears.
1: And Brad in L.A.
0: And today we do a deep dive on another classic album from our decade. An old friend returns today to help us honor the 1980 album Peter Gabriel III.
3: Hans plays with Thotty Thotty plays with Jane Jane plays with Willie Willie is happy again
1: Stuck in the '80s is now listener-supported via Patreon. Join us for VIP Zoom happy hours and more when you join at Patreon.com/slash Stuck in the '80s Podcast.
0: Hey, gang! It's been a long, long time since we did a deep dive on a single '80s album. Uh, we've done. Thriller, Synchronicity, Rio, Escape, Invisible Touch, The Game, uh, maybe some others. You know how hard it is to peruse 570 uh, notes and see which albums you've talked about over the course of 15 years? (laughs) Non-trivial. It is hard.
3: Oh, Ed, you sounded like Dirty Harry just then.
0: But one of our favorites came in episode 189 in February 2010. and, And what was the magic touch for that show, Brad, I ask you? Um...
1: Your Clean Clothes Shave?
2: Don't gross me out.
0: It featured an in-person appearance by one of our long-time listeners and good friends, Mark Canelli, Better known to Stucky in the 80s faithful as Bass Note. Well, guess who's back today? Bass Note.
2: Hey, guys. Hi
0: there. I'm so sorry that this took 10 years. I know <laughs> <laughs> as soon as we finished the first one, we knew it was a great show. and I was like, oh, we should do this more often. Well, every 10 years, I swear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> once a decade
0: I hope, it's not, I
2: hope it's not 10 years before i'm back on the show yeah we'll have our kids do the show by then because uh
0: <laughs> we'll, we'll be no mental capacity to do it at that point just get in the car butthead or you call it butthead butthead so back in february 2010 life was very different for at least me i think you, you guys probably
1: <laughs> no <laughs> not so much. i had 11 year old kids so yeah that was very different than
2: 21 year olds yeah, yeah, my, my kids were pretty young back then, too.
0: <laughs> Mark came to town. He he came to Tampa Bay. I forget what you were there for. Was it because it was your wife, wife's birthday trip or something like that?
2: We were just doing a family vacation in Orlando, and just you and I had arranged it so I could come down to Tampa and do the show. Right. So you drove all the way from
0: Orlando down to St. Petersburg. It was raining that day like hell, I remember, because we got soaked. Oh God. <laughs> but we went to the favorite... Thai restaurant of Stuck in the 80s, and we had – did we have the Sexy Susan? Uh, I think so. – yes, we did. <laughs> we did great, and I screwed up the name. It's Sexy Susie, and if you've never had one, a Sexy Susie is basically a sushi roll deep fried and then covered with 10 kinds of fish and smothered with uh, spicy mayo. <laughs> so we ate the fish. We went back to the office. We probably fell into a food coma, and then, and then we recorded a podcast about Peter Gabriel's So album. It was so well received, people to this day still talk about it, and every time we rerun it, uh you know people fall in love with it again. we We talked maybe it's probably been six months now, but we we talked about, hey, we've got to get you back on the show let's let's narrow down what album we're going to talk about, and a- after some negotiation, then the natural pick was this one: um Peter gabriel's uh, third solo album from 1980.
2: Because it is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. God, ridiculousness.
0: Let's start off with some necessary clarification about the
2: album's name.
0: Technically, the name is just Peter Gabriel.
2: Yes. Why? He just did not like titles. He wanted, he wanted the albums to be known visually by their covers.
1: Huh. I mean, he obviously titled the song, so, but he didn't want to title the collection.
2: I mean, and you'll know yeah. his fourth album was Security in the US, but that was because the US company Geffen insisted they give it a title, but elsewhere throughout the world, it was just Peter Gabriel 4 hmm. Now, this album is sometimes called the Melt Album. Why is that? It's because of the album cover. The album cover was done by Storm Thorgerson and Hypnosis, which was a very famous company that did so many album covers. You know. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, many of the like iconic album covers of the 70s and early 80s were done by them. The way this album cover was done, the picture was taken on a Polaroid SX70 instant camera, and the technique was developed by a guy named Les Crims who found that you could manipulate the Polaroid while it was developing like using like a blunt object. I think Thorgerson said he, they use like the like the eraser end of a pencil. They like put it between two pieces of plastic and just Rubbed on it with a pencil to, to give it that melting look. Hmm. I guess Peter Gabriel himself even helped with the process, and there was about three hundred Polaroids taken in total before they finally picked the one they used for the cover.
0: That's cool. That's different. That makes sense now.
3: Fabulous, stunning, really super elegant,
0: perfect. So, circa nineteen eighty or or nineteen seventy nine, I guess, when when he was working on this, what's going on in his professional and personal life?
2: I mean, what were what were the reaction to his first two solo albums? I mean, he had a hit with the first solo album with Salisbury Hill. That was, that was pretty successful. The second album, not so much. Wasn't no big singles off of that one. Both those albums were done by two different producers. The first album was done by Bob Ezrin. His style is do as many takes as possible until you get it exactly perfect and then throw the kitchen sink on top of it. Hmm. And then uh, the second album was produced by Robert Fripp from uh, King Crimson. Yeah. Fripp's style was very different. Fripp is very much a... Get it in the first or second take. We're not going to get any better than that. Let's move on.
1: Like all that energy is in the early take. Yeah. yeah.
0: So was he under any pressure come album number three? After a after second album didn't have any standout singles, was he under any pressure to like m- make an album that was a little bit more commercially accessible?
2: I think the U.S. company wanted him to get a little more commercial. He was still pretty popular in, in the U.K. and in Europe.
0: What about Genesis? I mean, he had left Genesis in what the mid 70s was it? Late uh, it was 75. 75 was when he left. So, come
2: 1979,
0: 1980,
2: where is Genesis at this point? <laughs> Genesis, they had just had like one of their bigger radio hits at the time, Follow You, Follow Me, from there. And then there were three albums. They're a trio now, you know, Banks, Collins, Rutherford. I believe at the time they were recording the Duke album, which would again give them more radio success. So, that leads us into Peter Gabriel.
0: He gathers a group of highly acclaimed musicians, from from what I can tell, and they settle into is it is it a farm to,
2: to start or a barn to start recording? As, it was it was basically a farm that that was on Peter's property. They called it Ashcombe House. Ashcombe House is where he usually did all his demos and stuff like that. And eventually, he would actually record his fourth album and so at Ashcombe House. What's his goal, as far as we know? As he starts this third
0: album, like what does he have? A, does he have a theme in mind? Does he have, does he have any sort of mantras in his head about this is what we're going to do? This is what we're not going to do.
2: Well, I mean, the, the one thing that he wanted to do on his first two albums that he did on this album was basically tell all the drummers, no cymbals. <laughs> so there were no symbols at all used on this album. He just wanted to experiment more. Ezrin and Fripp wouldn't really allow him to do that.
1: Oh, uh, sure. You know, just, you don't understand. I do this. you like, you yeah, the, the, they look, were basically kid, let me in tell charge. you how we're going to do this. Yeah. You hired me and I'm going to do my job. And this is how you're going to do it with me.
2: When I tell you to move, you'll
3: move fast. When I tell you to jump, you're going to say how high.
2: And this is why he probably went with Steve Lillywhite. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And Lillywhite had been working. Uh, he had worked with Susie and the Banshees on Hong Kong garden. Um, he had just finished doing drums and wires with XTC. Hugh Padgham was his engineer, so Lily White said to Padgham, "Hey, Peter Gabriel asked me to work with him." And Padgham I guess, was a huge Genesis fanboy. And funny, Padgham was just like, "Yes, let's do it. We've Got to do it."
1: The answer is yes. We are doing this.
0: <laughs> okay, so now we get to the fun part where we go song by song, and we get to learn something today. <laughs> this this was my favorite part of this of the of the show we did ten years ago. So this album has ten singles. We're going to play a piece of each one of them, and uh, Professor Bass Note is going to take us through them and uh, teach us something about each one of these songs and and the and the Peter Gabriel process as such as it is. Let's drop the needle and let's get started. This is Intruder.
3: It's-
2: the main thing about intruder you got to talk about is the drums mm. this drum technique that they used on this song would permeate the rest of the 80s and this was of course the gated reverb drum sound that phil collins would make even more famous on his solo album the following year and uh, ironically enough it was phil collins who played the, the drum part on this song
1: yeah, that's one of the things that I think is interesting. A lot is, was made at the time. I feel like that there was a lot of bad blood between Peter Gabriel and Genesis, and maybe there was with the group. But he and and Collins seemed to be friendly.
2: No, that's that's actually false. He and the, he and the band were were cool with each other. They it was a it was amicable thing. They all realized, you know, Peter needed they needed Peter his go own names. space. Yeah, yeah. You wear your
1: fox <laughs> hat someplace else, dude. Yeah, they were they were all still friends. Well, that makes me happy. The gated
0: drums. Who who came up with that? How how did that come about?
2: The story is that there's several people taking credit for it, but I would say Pagem would be the person who gets the most credit for it. They were at the, uh, the townhouse studios in West London where Phil would wind up recording his solo album as a room called the Stone Room. And every one of the channels on, on the board had a uh, a gate, noise and gate on it. Sure. But there was also a talkback mic so you could talk to the musicians. Right, And it just so happened, he turned on the talkback mic at one point, and there was like a natural gate on the talkback mic. And Phil happened to be tuning his drums at the time. He said the sound that came through was just phenomenal. They just loved it. And what it means by a noise gate, the gated reverb, is, you know how drums have a natural decay in their sound? You hit it and it kind of reverberates for a while. Sure. So with the noise gate, basically you hit the drum and it Cuts it off almost it just, immediately. It just
1: dies, right? As soon as the sound yeah. gets below a certain level, the gate closes on it, and you don't hear anything.
2: Exactly. That's the sound that they heard. Well, they loved the sound that came through the Talkback mic, but unfortunately, the Talkback mic was not going through the board. Pageant figured out a way to jury-rig the, the, that mic through the board Funny. so that they could get that sound. And Phil came up with the drum pattern that they used on the song.
0: Look at you, Brad. You know so much about uh, gated effects. I'm so impressed.
2: Well, you know,
1: I do work as a media technologist, Steve. Oh, well, now I feel like a
0: complete <laughs> idiot again. So, so we've all assumed our normal characters. Brad is the the wise man. Steve's the buffoon. And then we have Professor Basenote.
1: Basically. I think Basenote is the wise man on this one. I'm like the wise man color commentary. Yeah,
0: and I'm just – I'm the kid sitting in the second to the last row like, Gee, mister, tell me about <laughs> Peter Gabriel. <It's> just just – <laughs> Frantically trying to keep up with my note taking
2: as we as we go through this.
0: Based on you've how many times now have you seen Peter Gabriel live?
2: Oh wow! Up to 2010, I saw him about five or six times. Wow! But since then, I think I've seen him at least three or four more times. Well, wow. I, I saw the 25th anniversary um, so tour, the back to front tour. I saw the orchestral tour that he did. His last tour of the US, he did with Sting. I saw that also. How often does Intruder make the set list? The last few shows, it I, it hasn't, as far as I, I've seen. As we go through,
0: remind us, which ones have, you know, appeared most often, anyway, Ooh. so that we kind of have a feel for, like, you know, where where he thinks of them on his Ooh. list of, you know, songs he likes to perform.
2: I don't know if the topic of that song is something you really want to talk about these days. <laughs>
0: what is it about? It's... Yeah,
2: it's a very creepy song. Basically, about somebody breaking into someone's home, and I mean, there's hints of possibly rape being involved in this. Oh, A Little dark. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a very creepy song. Hey, let's just start
1: the album with that. It's a real feel good piece. <laughs> yeah, I can see why the A and R guys are like, yeah. I don't hear a single." In fact, yeah. I think I hear several committable offenses happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Speaking of which, that transitions nicely. Here's the second song in the album. It's called No Self Control.
2: Okay, this song, No Self-Control, it's about schizophrenia and paranoia. This song was the first one that involved Kate Bush. She did some background vocals on this one with, with Peter Gabriel. How did she get involved? Like, where did the two of them sort of connect? The story that I read, how they met is they both had a, um, a roadie that had worked for both of them who had died in a terrible accident. Kate Bush organized a concert to raise some money for his family for medical bills and things like that. And Gabriel took part in it. And that was the first time that they actually met each other and worked together in 79. Kate Bush had a television special and she invited Gabriel to be on the special and he performed a duet with her. And then he also performed uh, his song. Here comes the flood. But I mean, the, the two of them had a mutual respect for each other and loved what each other was doing. So when Peter called her up, she was, Totally gung ho about you know doing something on the album.
0: This song seems to have some special effects to it too. That we're, we're starting to see the influence of his more experimental side, aren't we?
2: There's a, a keyboard player a guy named Larry Fast. He had actually known Peter all the way back to from the Genesis days. They had done stuff together before. He had this little speaker that he bought from Radio Shack, of all places. They dubbed it the 995 speaker because that's how much it cost. He found, you know, when he was testing, you know, different sounds on his keyboards and things like that, he would play it through the speaker and it would get this really distorted sound out of it. And Gabriel heard that sound. He said, oh, that's fantastic. I love that. Let's use that. So they did all sorts of weird distorted sounds at the beginning of the the song are played through that little 995 speaker. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Can you imagine like, okay...
1: Hugh, we need you to mic up this speaker that looks like it was, you know, run over by a bus that bought at a garage sale. <laughs> <laughs> okay, mister. You're, you know, you're the boss, boss.
0: I got to ask this question. As I'm sitting here listening to the stories of Peter Gabriel and I'm sketching out in my mind what it would be like to deal with him, what was the influence? What was it that gave him this sort of love of experimenting with the way music is recorded and sound effects and such? Like, was there a. A moment in his early career where he was influenced by a, another band or an artist, I'm just, or did this just kind of synthesize on its own?
2: I think it just kind of synthesized on its own. I think he was really influenced by the punk movement at the time or the post-punk movement. He liked what he was hearing, and he wanted to try some of that stuff.
1: Makes sense. I mean, he's a creative guy. And this is one of the ways that that creativity is is coming coming mm-hmm. through. And like, how am I going to instrument this? How am I going to you know? How am I going to make it sound? How am I going to make it sound different?
2: Which was the reason he again chose Steve Lillywhite to produce right. because Lillywhite was totally open to experimentation. Like, let's partner on this. Not
1: let me like mm-hmm. Fripp. Like this is how we're doing it.
2: Again, more iconic Phil Collins drumming on this song. This is where you really hear hear Phil's the way he would play the toms on his stuff. Robert Fripp. This was. One of the first songs Robert Fripp helped with on this album. And actually in fact like Robert Fripp is one of the, the only people who played on all three of his first albums. Oh nice.
0: Huh. So that leads us into the third song. This one's called Ironically, Start.
2: This was just like a smooth jazz thing that was meant to be kind of like a, the calm before the storm from before the next song. The sax player, a guy named Dick Morrissey, who was a well-known studio player in, in Britain at the time, would become more well-known for the movie Blade Runner playing the sax solo in the love theme.
1: Oh, yeah. Sure. I know that. Huh, nice. Brad, you finally saw Blade Runner, didn't you? I'd seen it. I just hadn't <laughs> seen it since the director's cut came out it's late 80s early 90s is I'd seen it one time exactly and yeah at one point when my kid was home my son and I watched it cuz he's like I know it's an iconic 80s movie we should watch it I'm like yeah we should Oh been. man it's like, chip off the old block it's a long long setup to get to that you know tears in the rain moment <laughs> yeah I honestly I, I yeah it may have it may have suffered a little bit in the in the time in between I understand why it's a uh, important movie and there's still a lot of stuff in it that is just really you know it's really well done, but at the same time, I kind of walked away from it going. Okay, check that box.
3: Yeah. That's, that's,
0: that's 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 my favorite thing to do is is to to ask you a question that I already know the answer to, and watch and
1: watch you fire back with that like hint of disgust. It's not disgust. It's just like, well, that wasn't you know maybe maybe it didn't quite deserve all of the. Well, okay, now I'm gonna get a hate mail. But no, you're okay. not. Have you ever gotten a hate mail
0: for for doing that to me?
1: Oh, well no, I not not that I'm doing it to you, that I'm doing it to Blade Runner. Like, how dare oh, you no. say bad things no. about Blade Runner? No we You're don't. gonna be lost like tears in the rain, mister. We don't
2: <laughs> Ridley Scott's a genius, man. <laughs> I don't know that
0: any of that's true, but we'll continue.
2: <laughs>
0: oh my god. This one's called I Don't Remember. <laughs>
2: This is a song that actually he'd had for a while. It's basically what it's about. I don't remember. It's about memory loss is, is what the song oh, is man, about. Man, this guy's a
1: cheerful yeah. little songwriter, isn't he? No wonder, wonder I, I connect songs with this album. for oh, <laughs>
2: <me>. <laughs> the, the topics get cheerier no, as we go no along. No lover's lament on this album. <laughs> this is the only appearance of his longtime bass player, Tony Levin, on this album, because Tony was busy doing something else. Anybody want to chime in on what that was?
1: Um well if he was a bass player, he was probably working at McDonald's. Oh.
0: Now you're to hate mill for that. <laughs>
1: oh, I don't have to worry about that. Bass players don't know how to use computers.
2: Oh just doubling hey. down on it. <laughs> I am a bass player. <laughs> I've never gotten an email from Bass Note. <laughs> oh, I get jokes from friends all the time about, you know, all the bass player jokes.
0: Okay. No, why was, why was Tony Levin? Uh, yeah, what was he doing?
2: From- presumably not working at
1: McDonald's.
0: Tony Levin
2: was actually busy filming a movie with Paul Simon, of all people. Paul Simon's famous movie, One Trick Oh, Bowl. nice.
1: Oh, really? Huh. Okay. Well, that's better than McDonald's.
2: <laughs> the bass on the rest of the album is played by a guy named John Giblin, again, a studio musician. John would actually go on to join Simple Minds during the height of their popularity. He would play on uh, Don't You Forget About Me and their Once Upon a Time album. Mm.
0: Ooh, pretty gold there, yeah. Yeah. When I was listening to the album again for the first time a few weeks ago, for the first time in a long time, I should say, this was one of the first songs where I'm like, okay, ironically, I do remember this song. This is one of the first songs where I kind of thought – Okay, we're starting to get into the, to the familiar
2: territory. This song was released as a single. Um, actually, the live version of this song was released as a single, also, that, and there was a video that was done for it. Okay, wow, so that's boy. what's that like? I'm it's afraid not to a live ask. video. It's, <laughs> it's it, it, him you, sitting you, on a park bench, just sobbing into his hands, um, while the pigeons eat him. If you've ever him. seen the, if you've ever seen the Shock the Monkey video, yeah, yeah, it's a little, it's kind of similar. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You know, really creepy images. So like 120
1: minutes type of video.
2: Yes, very much so. This song uh, actually featured Dave Gregory from XTC on guitar. When Steve Lillywhite and Hugh Padgham found out that they were going to be working with Gabriel, they were still working with XTC at the time. And Dave Gregory basically chimed in and said, Hey, uh, you know, if uh, there's anything I can do on the album, give me a call. (laughs)
0: That's funny because we have a question later on the show when we get to the Seggies. A listener asks us about... Music we rediscovered through the podcast. As I was pondering my answer and I'm reading this now, I'm thinking XTC was a band that I don't think I really connected with in the 80s. It wouldn't be until we started doing this podcast that I really became familiar with their music and really, really loved it.
2: I'm a big XTC fan. I jumped on the bandwagon around 91, 92 when they released the Nonsuch album.
0: Gotcha. What else is important to know about this song?
2: There was another technical advance that was used on this song that would permeate the 80s. It was the Fairlight CMI synthesizer. Ooh, baby. And this was uh, one of the first sampling synthesizers that was used. Peter loved this instrument so much that he had gotten one of the prototypes. He and his cousin invested in and established a company that would import and distribute a synthesizer in the UK. Oh, cool. This synthesizer wound up pretty much on almost every album that came out of the UK in the oh, 80s. Oh yeah, oh
1: yeah. And like, what does a sampling synthesizer do? Well, let me just cast, cast your mind, if you will. Ferris Bueller's sitting in his bedroom exactly playing <laughs> barf noises on a synthesizer. That's what a you know a juvenile child does with something like that, but this song is what a musician does with such a tool.
0: Okay, now we get to one of my favorite songs on the album. Uh, this one's called Family Snapshot.
3: I don't really hate you. Me and you I want to be somebody You will like that too If you don't get given You learn to take And I will take you
2: This is probably the cheeriest yeah, song Of, course of all of like Steve <laughs> <laughs>
0: this is- I got a family reunion next weekend Don't think I won't be listening to this song To and from that
2: This song is based on the book An Assassin's Diary by Arthur Bremer, who shot Alabama Governor George Wallace in May of 1972. Wow. Okay, maybe
0: I won't listen to this so much on the way back.
1: My son is a big Peter Gabriel fan, and I told him we were going to do this show, and one of the things he sent me, and he's like, it's a pretty diverse album. It has a song that theorizes this guy shot somebody because his parents neglected him.
2: (laughs) Yeah, ba- that's basically what how the song does it. And I'm like, are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> yeah, it's basically a guy who wants fame because nobody ever noticed him. Mm. You know, and he was ignored by his family, ignored by his parents. The end of the song goes back to that where he's a, he's a little kid again, you know, saying, you know, come back, mom and dad.
1: Oh, my gosh. Oh, Brutal.
2: The book that inspired the song also inspired Paul Schrader to write the screenplay for the 1976 movie Taxi Driver. Huh. Which was directed by Martin Scorsese, and of course Gabriel would later work with Scorsese to score the film The Last Temptation of Christ. I don't know why I didn't know that,
0: but I didn't, and now everyone knows that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you know why maybe I connect with Family snapshots so much. I don't know.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. This is why Steve <laughs> tracks the downloads on the podcast so closely. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I
0: mean, I, this is. More, I mean, I. I don't know. I just like this song. I just do. Now, now I feel dirty for doing so. And but I, I don't. I don't know that I'm going to quit listening. So.
2: I mean, musically, I love the way this song just builds. Yes. And then just kind of goes back to the quiet part at the end.
0: You could put this on so, and it would. I think it would fit in nicely. I agree. I totally agree with that. Maybe not so much this next song. This one's called "And Through the Wire." <laughs>
2: This is probably the the most straight-ahead rock song on the album. The guitar was played by Paul Weller from The Jam. Oh,
1: love it. Nice. Love it. The
2: Jam happened to be recording in the studio down the hall from them, and the A&R person from Atlantic Records, a guy named John Kladner, was visiting at the time And he was basically trying to get them To make this song sound like a Doobie Brothers song
1: <laughs> I don't hear a single Switched. I can oh, hear geez. it I can hear
2: him saying it I can hear him saying it
1: I don't hear a single guys Which, As he wipes the blow off his nose
2: <laughs> Not sit well with Gabriel or Lily White Or any pretty much anybody in the studio I'm sure The production team did, did not like Kaladner at all And would play pranks on him while he was there One of the things was They would turn the heat way down in the studio Because he loved warm rooms I like that kind of pettiness I, I'm becoming a more of a Peter
1: Gabriel fan <laughs> With every every moment here,
2: <laughs> so I mean, Gabriel did not heed Kladner's advice, of course, and, and immediately went down the hall and said, "Hey, Paul Weller, come here, play some guitar on this."
1: You don't sound anything like Michael McDonald, do you?
2: Exactly. Kladner would would actually go back to Atlantic Records and and tell Ahmet Erdogan, the the head of Atlantic Records, that this album does not sound good. This is not something we want to release. And it wound up Atlantic decided they they would not release the album. They said, you know. We'll give you the album back. You take it somewhere else. Damn. We'll take the option on the on the next album. And basically, Peter's manager, Gail Colson, told him to, you know, where they could stick that offer. Oh,
1: man, just because they turned the thermostat down. Boy.
2: <laughs> Buy
1: a sweater, Kolodner.
2: The irony <laughs> is, Mercury Records signed him for the one record deal for this album. And the album wound up doing really good. And of course, Atlantic was like, oh, we want you back. And they were like, nah, no man, thanks. That's interesting to me. He would wind up signing with Geffen Records. But the irony is that, John Kaladner would become the head of a for Geffen Records. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a small
2: business.
0: Okay, enough is enough. We finally get to the song that if you're any sort of 80s fan, you remember this one and you can probably sing along with it. This is Games Without Frontiers.
3: Andre has a red flag. Chiang is blue. They all have hills to fly them on, except for Yu, Dressing up Playing city games, hiding out in treetops, shouting out rude names.
2: Without tears. Games Without Frontiers, the lead single from the album, would chart at number 48 in the US huh. and number four in the UK. Rightfully so. Inspired by a British game show called It's a Knockout, which was a knockoff of a pan-European show called J'ai Sans Frontiers, where teams from different countries would dress up in silly costumes and compete in equally silly challenges. Sounds great. I wonder if that's on YouTube. Sounds like the 80s cruise. <laughs> <laughs> in the best possible way. Yes,
0: I mean that in the best possible way.
2: Gabriel's point of the song was to show that war was still the silliest game of all. Oh. And, of course, the famous backing vocals by Kate Bush again.
0: Now, who does the whistles? All the whistling in this. because The whistles? Best, yeah, because my favorite thing is to, to whistle along with this as best as I can, which I can't do.
2: The whistles were actually Gabriel, Lily White, and Pajam. Oh, nice. Huh.
0: Kate sings the the repeating line, right?
2: Yeah, the I I don't know. J. Sans Frontiers. J. Sans Frontiers, yeah. Okay.
0: I just want to make sure I got that right. I, I think for like 39 and a half years, I've been putting my own anglicized
1: lyrics in, into that spot. Oh, it's one of the most, like, mondegreened lyrics in the history of rock music. You yeah. Know? I mean, I, I've seen 10 or 15 different takes on it, and I'm like, wait, how did you hear that?
0: <laughs> I always heard, she's so funky now.
1: Or, yeah, or, or she's so popular. I think you hear, I see that Oh, that, a lot. yeah, that makes more sense, popular. Um, yeah. sh- I've seen share some opium. Like, <laughs> What?
0: well yeah there we go we can look. officially you can put that as the extra credit question on the exam at the end of the show so
1: popular Mondegreens for games Without frontiers we want to do a montadegreen show but it's just so random i don't yeah it doesn't really work it's not really a topic that lends itself to any kind of meaningful discussion we could read a list of them though that might be interesting
0: and, and leave it to brad to, to actually know like the the technical name for misunderstood lyrics and lady Mondegreen... <laughs> Where do you find this stuff? How do you not know that? I,
2: I, just, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, none of us. <laughs> well, knew you're a that. bass player.
2: <laughs> oh.
3: <Touché>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man. Okay. Uh, okay. Sorry. I'll go back to my. I'll go back to my wonky corner. On that note, here's the
0: next song. <laughs> We call this the Brad Williams theme song. This one's called Not One of Us.
2: This is a song that it could actually probably fit in well today. This is a song about racism and being an outsider. Oh, okay, I have to take it back, Brad. It's not about you. Uh, I mean, a lot of racial tension at the time. Oh, yeah. In 1980 in the UK. And riots at the time. So Peter was just wanted to write a song that reflected that.
0: I think sometimes we forget probably something we're really guilty of as, as Americans. Just not being aware of what's going on around us. Having to have things explained to us sometimes via the one you know, universal method of communication, you know, song, music. Yeah, well, I guess mathematics would be universal too, but <laughs> don't start that. <laughs> 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 one that people actually connect with, Steve. <laughs> right, exactly. So, I mean, I, I don't think at the time I was aware of this. You know, I probably probably wasn't for another twenty five years that I was aware of this. So, yeah. Anyway. Steve's rant endeth now. So, oh, here we go. Perfect, perfect transitional song for Steve and and the rest of uh, the people out there who are nodding along with me, which is probably like six people at this point. This song is called "Lead a Normal Life."
3: It's nice here with a view of the trees. Eating with a spoon, they don't give you knives. Expect you watch those trees Blurring in the breeze We want to see you lead an old life
2: The character of this song is Someone who is in a mental institution And the sense of isolation that belongs to that
1: It's not funny, Steve I love this song (laughs) I it's literally listened to this song on on repeat for a while the other day. Just the the marimba part, I just oh, it's so good and
2: and that that, that repeated piano line that just yeah. runs through the entire song. Oh God, it's so good. And then you you hear the drums come in at the end, where you to kind of symbolize the the madness underneath.
1: Yeah, he talks about they don't give you knives here.
2: Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. What are we talking about? And they're like,
1: oh, my gosh.
2: When this album was actually played to Ahmet Erdogan, the president of Atlantic Records, this song unnerved him so much that he had to ask if Peter had actually been in a mental institution or if he needed help.
1: Are you okay, Mr. Gabriel? Blink twice if you need help. <laughs> T- Please wow.
2: take the fox uh, head off. <laughs> Famously, Erdogan would later regret (laughs) having dropped Gabriel from the label, especially when So became such a huge hit. Well,
1: yeah, greedy bastard. Of course he's upset he missed the commission (laughs) on that.
2: It is a
0: dark, dark album. Is it easy to say that it's a lot darker than So? Is it easy to say that this might be his darkest of his solo work, or, or is this just the tip of the iceberg?
2: This one would definitely be his darkest album. I mean, he's not afraid to go dark on certain songs, but this album in total was definitely the darkest.
1: I wonder how much of that is, uh, just like you say, uh, because of his he's working with Lily White and he has a little bit more control, he felt like he could bring some of this material to it and it would be respected, you know?
0: I wonder what would have happened had Lily White been there from the beginning.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, the first two albums would have been very different.
0: Yeah. Okay, so that leads us up to the final song on Melt. People who have seen the movie Cry Freedom will recognize this. Uh, in the late 80s, this was also a very strong video that was on MTV. I'm speaking, of course, of Biko.
2: This song would have a huge impact on Gabriel's career and a lot of his future endeavors, particularly the big reason he was involved with the Amnesty International tours in the 80s. Oh, sure. Yeah.
0: I always thought, based on the timing of the movie that this came out with and and the timing when I saw it on MTV, I always thought this was a song that came out much, much later in the 80s.
2: No, he'd, he'd released at least two or three versions of this song dating back from from this album. So what's the story of Steve Biko then? Stephen Biko was a uh, South African national human rights activist fighting against apartheid. Biko was arrested because he was outside of an area that he was not supposed to be in. Of course, Biko was sneaking out to do a speech and was arrested at the time. He was basically tortured by the South African police for 22 hours and then manacled and transported to a prison hospital where he was pronounced dead. And the police tried to cover it up, saying Biko had died as a result of a hunger strike. But Biko had a friend, a white journalist by the name of Donald Woods, who managed to get the true story out and had to eventually flee South Africa himself.
1: Talk about stuff that we didn't really have a sense of what was going on in other parts of the world. I didn't know what apartheid was in 1980. I'm sure of it. Yeah,
0: positive. Cry Freedom came out in 1987. Denzel Washington played Beko, Kevin Klein played Woods, and I believe Biko plays, what, over the credits, closing credits?
2: Yeah, the end credits, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: It's haunting. Oh, it is, yeah. I mean, I've seen Peter Gabriel exactly one time. I saw him at the Forum back when it was a concert venue the first time around, and he closed with this. His second song on the encore was, was Biko. Jeez.
0: It's got it's got a strange bagpipe sound in it. What's that? What's going on there?
2: The bagpipes were played via keyboard. Larry, fast again. He had found a yeah. sound. Is that the Fairlight at work? You think? Uh, I believe so. Gabriel liked the bagpipe sound on it, but they couldn't figure out how to connect it to South Africa. So they did some research and they found out that historically, the first and second battalion of the Royal Scots Army had fought in the Boer Wars. And played bagpipes into battle. So in Gabriel's mind, the underpinnings of apartheid had bagpipes on them. When did this come out? The album was released in the UK on May 30th, 1980. Didn't reach the US until September 1980. What was the reaction? What was the reception? In the UK, the album would hit number one. Wow. Mm. And in the US uh, Billboard pop album charts, it hit number 22. Still not bad. I mean, it was... Gabriel's first true commercial success in the U.S.
1: I mean, you think about—we talk about this all the time—but you think about what popular music was like in 1980, and the fact that you know Peter Gabriel with this material could shoulder his way into the charts in any way, shape, or form is a testament.
0: 1980 was a really weird year of music.
1: There's a lot I mean, going you, on.
0: You still—you had—you still had the the dying, wheezing death gasps of disco. You had the post-punk
1: sort of going on with Blondie and
0: the Clash. You have the yep. beginning of the new romantic era.
1: I go to this every time. You still got a lot of soft country in the charts. So,
0: yeah, mm. you still have a lot of soft FM. You still have a lot of weird, crazy crossover stuff that's going on. And then, so for someone like Peter Gabriel to step in, I mean, it, that's and,
1: and make and be noticed is sure. pretty remarkable.
0: In 1989, the album was ranked number 46 on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 100 Greatest Albums of the 80s. Wow. And where it's tucked in, I think, is kind of (laughs) weird. It's tucked in between Private Dancer from Tina Turner, which, uh, you know, pretty well-known album, but it's it's still like number 46, really. And then Daydream Nation by Sonic Youth. Hmm. So you (laughs) you talk about three very different albums, I think, there. Just, again, showing you that... The '80s itself was such a eclectic period of time, music-wise. So, on the Rolling Stone list, by comparison, Peter Gabriel's album "So" comes in at number fourteen.
2: Which you know, just to,
0: I don't know if any of his other albums came in
2: in the in the top one hundred list. He didn't have a whole lot of albums in the '80s, like, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, maybe four. I mean, this one, "Security," "So," and then. um the soundtrack to uh, Last uh, Temptation of Christ. This is
1: early '90s, isn't it? Yeah.
0: And then the forgotten one from 1983. Peter Gabriel goes country.
1: Oh right. <laughs> Peter. Didn't he do a crossover with Sam Fear? Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: Mark, tell us about this German version of this album that was that came out in 1980. For some reason, Peter Gabriel's always been popular in Germany. So he decided he was going to do the entire album with German lyrics. So he literally re-recorded all of the lyrics in German.
1: Oh my gosh, that's amazing!
2: And it's called uh, the in Deutschen album. Well, because German's such an easy language to speak, so mm-hmm. naturally anybody can pick it up. <laughs> if you ever want to get a good laugh, listen to the German version of Shock the Monkey. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, Shock den Orphan. Shock
0: the orphan. Okay, poor little orphan. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> you know what? Else I'd like to shock right now. Shock. The Seggies. The,
3: the Seggies. seggies.
0: <laughs> ah, the mystical refrain that is, listener mailbag. Uh, we got one letter this week. It's from Sweet Bobby Land in Houston. Brad, you want to take a crack at it? I would be
1: more than happy to do so, sir. We begin. Sweet Bobby writes... Stephen Brad, a movie that might never get name checked on stuck in the 80s is Hero at Large, starring John Ritter in his 3s company prime. I randomly found it on YouTube the other night, started watching and couldn't stop. When I saw the summary before watching it, it immediately hit me that I'd seen it on TV back in the day. For those who've never seen it, John Ritter plays an actor who dresses up like superhero Captain Avenger to promote a movie he ends up breaking up a robbery at a bodega. I must have been in New York then, because it's a bodega, and that's the only place I've ever seen that word used. Which leads him into trying to be a real-life superhero. It was released in 1980, which made me wonder if it inspired either The Greatest American Hero or Tootsie. The plot, if you think about it, has elements of both 80s classics. Sure, it's cheesy, but I enjoyed seeing the sweetness, charm, and decency of John Ritter at his apex. Unfortunately, it was at a time when TV stardom was rarely parlayed into movie stardom, so Ritter's movie career never really got the legit shot it deserved. That's true. Yeah. I don't think I've heard of this movie.
0: I've heard of it and I want to say I saw part of it. I was I was a huge John Ritter fan. I mean, he just was supposed to be the most decent
1: nice guy, so <laughs> What was
0: the what was the movie? Oh god, where they wearing the glow in the dark
2: condoms. Glow
1: in the dark condoms, that's um
2: Skin deep. Skin, Skin deep. Yes. Yeah. Thank the you. The Blake Edwards movie. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Pervert with a movie
1: budget. Yes, it's Blake Edwards. <laughs> Bobby continues. Are you ready for this, Steve? Yeah. I also wanted to throw a PPTMN out there to challenge longtime listeners of stuck in the 80s. After listening to just about every episode, it hit me that there are songs you guys either made me rediscover or even fall in love with for the first time. I've added them to my 80s playlist, and they will forever be connected to you guys. Maybe other listeners can follow suit and write in their Stuck in the 80s top five rediscoveries. As Casey Kasem would say, let's count them down. Number five, In My Dreams by Ario Speedwagon. Okay. Number four, On the Dark Side by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. Classic. Number three, "Heaven in Your Eyes" by Loverboy. Sure, I will say I'm taking a lot of tips from Mike Reno these days on how to wear a headband, but that's my problem. <laughs> Number two, "Together in Electric Dreams," which he says is by the Human League. Eh, it's, eh, it's more Phil Oakey, more Phil Oakey, but a great song. And yeah, you know, I always love the fact that. Steve like realized that it's actually a sad song and so then you oh. like it even more
0: everything you know me I think everything is happy until someone reads
1: between the lines and then I'm like oh <laughs> shit oh man <laughs> and number one I know you've been waiting for at least 45 seconds meet me halfway by Kenny Loggins Meet Me Halfway is easily number one. I remember hearing it on the show back in the daily years, and I couldn't get it out of my head. Not sure if I did or didn't hear it back in the 80s. I doubt seriously I've heard it on the radio in the last three decades. When I listen to it now, I get goosebumps every single time. It encapsulates all the heart, the innocence, and the joy that growing up in the 80s represents to yours truly. Hopelessly and happily stuck in the 80s, Sweet Bobby Land in Houston, Texas. Yeah, maybe Halfway was from the movie Over the Top. Yeah, I will always connect it to Over the Top, which yeah. is, you know.
0: Not a great movie.
1: No. But, no.
0: but uh, happily available. But Kenny Loggins got to eat, too. Yeah, you know. it's, uh, he, he ate pretty well in the 80s. The movie, I think, itself is either on, it's on one of the streaming platforms right now because it keeps coming up under Suggestions for Steve, and I'm like, <laughs> no, sir.
1: <laughs> Thank you, No. <laughs>
0: oh and you know come to think of it did did Kenny Loggins play that on the cruise I don't think he did
1: I I don't remember that was the night I was sick
0: I don't think it makes his set list these days which is sad guy's got a catalog though he's got to move through I mean
1: it's a great song it's a better song and this is not uncommon in, in his career it's a better song than the movie deserves
0: he's got quite a few so Bobby wants listeners to write in with the songs that they rediscover thanks to the podcast in the spirit of cooperation I'll say we should each name a song we kind of rediscovered during the course or making of or listening to podcasts I, I can go first coincidentally I'd rediscovered this song on another deep dive podcast that we did back in same year as this last one uh, 2010 we did a whole episode on Queens the game and the song was save me Some people are gonna to listen to this podcast and they're gonna rediscover a couple songs that they've forgotten about. But based on what is there a song that you can think about
2: that you rediscovered during
0: the course of listening to the show?
2: I'm gonna do a Jen in one end. I'm actually gonna give you two songs. Oh bless you. <laughs> Back when you guys did the Oingo Boingo podcast, I went through and started listening to all my Oingo Boingo stuff again. There are two songs. One is a Danny Elfman solo song called Happy, mm. which was on the summer school soundtrack. <laughs> Oh, yeah, Which it's a good is one. A, a fantastic song. Love that song. And another one was one I don't you guys didn't play this song on the podcast, but I discovered this song. It was from a one-off album called Live for Life. It was an IRS compilation. Okay. And it was a song called Take Your Medicine. Oh man, I don't know that. Yeah. It's a song that was recorded around the same time as Dead Man's Party, and quite frankly, in my opinion, should have been on Dead Man's Party instead of Weird Science. <laughs> It's just this really great rockin' song I mean, Bartek has this really great guitar solo on it And there's a great horn section on it Some of Danny's more, more sinister lyrics That's saying something It's on uh, YouTube, you can look it up It's a great song, I just like that song a lot What about you, Brad? so i
1: have two they're from the same show even because i couldn't decide which one to go with so i went with both of them episode 521 we did one of our forgotten hits series Mm. forgotten hits of 1983 since we did that show i have had lawyers in love by jackson brown and dead giveaway by shallamar in pretty much every playlist i've made Those are two very different songs, my friend. They, they are, but I was not listening to them at all, and now they're in constant rotation.
0: Hey, if you want to tell us what songs you rediscovered during the course of the uh, podcast, email us at podcast at or send us a new question. Just put PPTMN in the subject line. We'll be right back after this commercial break.
3: The NBC Thanksgiving Comedy Weekend starts tonight. First, join the Cosby family for a comedy feast. Dad, that's not a turkey. That's the. Like heaven. Followed by a different world. Don't you love it? Pen on cheer. You can't spend your life dressed up like Mark Twain. Why not? He did. And Hill Street's Bruce White's in Mama's Boy tonight. And
0: hey, we're back. We have a few minutes left. I thought we did a nice deep dive today. What other 80s albums deserve a deep
1: dive? if you had one you were
0: going to add brad what would it be uh
1: well the problem with this is you go to your favorites right yeah and so those may not be uh they may not have the same level of engagement for other people but maybe these people would learn to love them as much as you do so i'm going to put this one out there i think we should do a a show on new traditionalists the 1981 devo release okay love that album it's so good oh I'd be up for that. I mean, I, I,
0: I
2: We are through. Be in cool.
1: And then on the <laughs> other side, the other, like a second one that I think is in some ways a companion piece to that in my mind is uh, Adam of the Ants, Kings of the Wild Frontier. Oh,
2: yeah. oh another great Jeez. album. Yeah, it's just two home runs right there. What about you, Bass Note? I would say Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair. Oh, that's one. a really good idea. That would be a good one. And then I'm going to throw in one of my favorites. This is Big Audio Dynamite by Big Audio oh, Dynamite.
1: That's a
0: fantastic. Oh, I yeah. love that album. That's really good. Nice. I'm going to say you mentioned Boingo. I want to go a little different and maybe do Nothing to Fear from 1982, mm. or mm. or even Good for Your Soul. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Dead Man's Party has been talked to death oh, yeah. about. <laughs> nothing to fear was about the time I got into them and they still, I think
1: to this day are the only band I've used to have every uh, album for back when you actually owned albums. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this question we were talking earlier and another one that, you know, might bear a little scrutiny is once upon a time by simple minds.
0: Oh Ooh. yeah. Yeah. You're talking about grand slam. The the only other one I would pick would be Lincoln from they might be giants.
2: Oh, another good. album. Interesting. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: I was for the longest time one of the biggest. They might be giant fans. But I interviewed him once he's a president of the fan club. <laughs> I interviewed <laughs> them once. That was fun too. If you have an album you think we should do a deep dive on, hey, if there's only some sort of electronic communication device that where you could reach out to us and we would be able to receive your hmm. your words of wisdom. So by now you're tired of us saying it, but it's podcast at In the meantime, bass note I swear to God, it won't be 10 years before you're back on because we ain't going to be doing this in 10 years. (laughs) Uh, But in the meantime, Brad, myself, and BassNet will remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s. If looks could
3: kill, they probably will In games without frontiers War without tears If looks could kill, they probably will In games without frontiers War without tears
1: Stuck in the Eighties is now on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, go to Patreon.com slash Stuck in the Eighties podcast. Special thanks to Check Battery Daily for our theme music, and thanks for listening.